Welcome to New Observations Podcast. Today, we have the distinct pleasure of introducing Peter Baldwin Panagori to you. And um, I cannot say enough about having Peter on the podcast. Um, it's, it's such a, an honor for, for me to be able to bring him to this audience and discuss his own spiritual journey and um, his astonishing experience as a young man um, when he had a, a near-death experience and um, approached heaven, spoke to God, and returned to earth. Peter, welcome to the show. Mia, I'm really glad to be here. I thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I just um, honestly can feel elevated just from speaking to you all, you know, in terms of the pre-show um, little conversation that we just had and going over your work the past couple of days in preparation for this. Um, thank you so much for being here. Can you tell us a bit about your background? Did you grow up in Maine? No, I did not grow up in Maine. I live on the coast of Maine now, but I grew up outside of Boston, uh, Metro West, as it's called now, about 20 miles uh, out the Mass Pike, and went to Catholic high school, grew up in this, this small city, in a, it was kind of a blue-collar factory town, but it became a tech town as I grew older, and my dad worked as an architect, and my mom was... Uh, at home, I had brothers and sisters, and raised in the church, Catholic and Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Roman Catholic and Greek Orthodox, and uh, so I got a, a, a immersed in Christian cultural context of Eastern Massachusetts. Well, again, we have something else in common. I I grew up uh, going to Catholic school. I um, <clears throat> was Russian Orthodox <laughs> as opposed no to way. Greek. <laughs> yes, <both>? yes. <laughs> well, my my father was half Italian and half Ukrainian, so we did, um, you know, Russian Christmas, and uh, yeah, we had both uh, heavily Im influences um, in the house. And and my mother um, was actually from the Boston Fay family, which it turns out that Prescott Bush's uh, grandmother was a Fay, but that's another whole long story. But so you were steeped in Christian uh, and Catholic mysticism from an early age. Yes, I was steeped in, in those two forms of, um, well, mysticism for sure. And I, I well, just want to, before we go on, I want to say, did you celebrate two Easter's? Um, we Orthodox did. Easter, we, we were, we, we were aware of, you know, the Orthodox Easter, but, okay. but Orthodox Christmas was celebrated every year. We had two Christmases. Right. We, we, we did a little less of the, of the Christmas, a little more of the Easter. Anyway, but yes. Well, you were more hardcore, obviously. You were more hardcore. Well, it was, it was the culture of, of my family. You know, my, my, my father grew up in a Greek neighborhood where his, you know, his family had come from Greece. So it wasn't just my grandmother. It was oh, wow. Her mother yeah. and the aunts. 
and so it was it was a you know he well anyway so what, what was your question I, I lost it I, uh, I made the observation that you grew up as as I did and under, understand you know your background um, you grew up in in Chris, Christian and more specifically Catholic mysticism um, you know the whole mystical body of Christ and and um, you know, dealing with um, the clergy and probably nuns. Um, as, well, as more more pre, more brothers than nuns. I went to more brothers. School, but but you bring mm-hmm. up a you bring up an interesting point. Is that being raised in these two churches simultaneously, Orthodox and Catholic? From the outside, you, people might not realize that they've been at war for a thousand years, and and the right. part of the war that they've been in for a thousand years has to do with the the amount of Christ in Jesus. You know, was he fully God, or you know, more God than human, or more human than God? And so they used to, when I was a kid, they used to talk about the other church, and you know, the an and say they're going to hell. And so being raised in this family where these two religions of people I loved, my mom and my dad and all their, you know, everybody else in, in both churches, um, I realized pretty young that they couldn't both be right, you know, because right. they're both saying the other's going to hell. So I reached the conclusion in my young mind that probably they both contained a portion of the truth and and that was that was seen through the lens of being a natural born mystic and, I, and which is a, a a Bob Marley song of course uh, but um, it, 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 it that's where I get the language from but I, I started having I had my first mystical experience out of body uh, what Christians would call rapture into heaven um, into the divine presence when I was five and they continued on and uh, right through well, just before I died and then after. The other thing I want to mention is I was had this great fortune of stumbling into contemplative meditation when I was in high school and uh-huh. began my meditative life before I died, and it turned out to be the most important thing, a touchstone that I had in my hip pocket to go back to, to reach into after I died. So my whole early childhood was, well, it was mystical. I, 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 by the time I was seven, I'd been uh, raptured into heaven once and had a divine vision of Ganesh, oddly, okay, which is weird, um, having been raised in this culturally isolated sort of place. Um, and then... When I was in high school, I learned meditation, and then I had a couple more mystical experiences the year before I died, and then I died, and everything changed. Um, <clears throat> that was, um, I've had had a few near-death experiences myself, and uh, for me, those moments have been to show how connected I, you, we are to the other, to the other realms, you know, we're, we're, it's, it's constant, it's continual, there's no break um, with that connection. And, um, 
you know, as a two-year-old, I, I walked around knowing that God was watching me, you know, and mm-hmm. um, interacting. And um, I, I just think we're in such an extraordinary place uh, right now. And, sh- and talking about this, you know, your experience and, and how your life has played out, um, I, I just think is so important for people to hear um, because we're, we are spiritual beings having a physical experience. Oh, yeah. And, and I'm so glad to hear you say that it's an ongoing experience. Mystical, deeper mystical experiences is, isn't just something that happens to you. A near-death experience, for instance, as a type of mystical experience, it, 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 just because the experience ended doesn't mean that the divine presence that you live with ended. It's this constant, ongoing um, perception, perspective shift that you. Right. I've never been back. Each time this thing, this, these kinds of things happen to me, I come back a different person. And it's weird because everybody, I look like I'm the same guy. I talk like I'm the same guy. But even as a young child, once I began, once I... I understood the eternal nature of myself when I was five. I lived in the world differently than I had the day before. Because, like you said, I walked around knowing the divine presence is with me all the time. Right. Right. It's so good to hear you say this, (laughs) honestly. Um, Mm -hmm. And this is available for each and every person, this experience, this, this reality, this place of being in the world um, is available to each and every person here. It's why we're here to have That's why we're here. gain this knowledge and, and experience. Yes. And, and, and I know that I was talking to somebody today and, uh, I've been corresponding with this person who writes, who's been writing to me uh, with uh, literally his name is anonymous, anonymous at some, you know, anonymous, some number and at some email address. And he won't reveal himself. Very articulate, very intelligent, very capable intellectually has never, ever felt the divine presence and, and wants wow. to, but can't, and is blaming God. And, you know, the only, the, the thing about it is, I, you, you can be, everybody's born with, you are a soul. You're a consciousness living inside a form, whether you know it or not. Uh, and it's accessible to every single person. Um, but some people have a really hard time tapping into it. And the techniques of tapping into it are they're available. People have been studying them and teaching them for centuries around the world. Uh, it, it, but if you're not an adept at it, then you need to apply yourself to the techniques of it. And even if you are an adept, applying yourself to the techniques of it, techniques of it, of access can only improve your connection. I, I've been, I've, I've been a, a natural, I'm a natural born mystic. I've had all these experiences. I've, I've died a couple of times. I practice technique to improve and increase my my inner capacity for the presence inside myself because 
it strengthens me and gives me courage and confidence and um, it's my by a balanced point of life and so I, I've been encouraging this anonymous man to do such a thing but he hasn't he doesn't have I guess the the willpower to apply himself uh, to the to practices and it's a hard thing you know it, it's a hard thing to um, dedicate yourself to a meditative practice in life in order to learn to be silent and still inside to quiet the internal world in order to access the divine presence the the whisper of god as it says in uh, the hebrew scriptures um everybody is accessible it's accessible to everybody but it's, it sometimes takes a little effort many saints and mystics um have have either an illness or um an experience mm. like your experience on the mountain to kind of catapult them into this place of acceptance i think number one um helps people to be able to listen um because mm. it calms the ego and 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 you know and minimizes that chatter within our within our brains if we allow that to you know have have reign or control over over us and not you know quiet the mind but um can you talk about your your um mountain climbing uh, or i'm not sure if that's the correct term because you were climbing ice um and and what happened were you I, I'm curious to know if as you began that experience did you have some sort of um, premonition or uh, internal warning that something was going to happen did you feel like you were about to have some sort of monumental um, experience at, at that day I was nervous no not I didn't have an, in, an intuition of it I was nervous I'd never ice climbed before I've been on I'd, I'd climbed before I was a rock climber and a backpacker and a mountaineer but I'd never used I'd never been on ice before uh, for vertical ascent and so I was a little nervous about it and so I as if I had an intuition I ascribed it to the dread I felt at the thing I was about to do and drove myself forward with my willpower but but the year before when i was backpacking on the appalachian trail in the winter it was march um and i was out for a week with a buddy of mine i had two warning trips to heaven that i didn't understand the, oh. the symbology of them was not clear to me and only became clear to me after i died that they were definitely um a setup for what was about to happen and so I was, I was, I was well prepared, in a in a sort of, um, well, I, I guess I'd been groomed. Maybe that's the right word. I'd been groomed mm -hmm. from childhood for this thing to happen, whether I understood it or not. I I understand completely what you're what you're saying. Um, so tell us tell us about that day sure so I was a little set up here uh, I, I was out in Montana for a national student exchange from Massachusetts running away from my family essentially um, and 
I decided not to go back to Boston for spring break, two-week break, uh, because I didn't want to see my family, basically. And I decided to go into the mountains, and I found this guy who was, who was going to go on this 10-day snow-caving ice climbing trip. And we met and we talked and we compared skill sets and he was skilled and I had skills and we'd both been, you know, winter camping all our lives and out in the back country and all adventurers and capable and all this stuff. And so we went out on this trip and we spent most of the time, a week or more, snow caving in Alberta and uh, British Columbia, I'm sorry, in British Columbia. And then we crossed back into Alberta, it's right on the border. And we did this one-day ice climb, and his name was Tim. And Tim was a certified lead climber. He had just become a certified lead climber. And we had decided to do this. He, he, we didn't decide. He's like, let's go climb this particular place uh, that, I, that he knew about. And I was like, yeah, sure. So we went to a mountain called Cirrus Mountain and a climb called Lower Weeping Wall. There's an upper weeping wall, but it was we were climbing lower weeping wall. Most people did, and it was in, an internationally known spot. And so we went to this place, and it was about ten, there was about ten feet of snow on the ground. Uh, we stomped in on the path, and we got to the base of the ice, and there was a bunch of teams on the ice that day climbing. They had our we were the last team to show up that morning, and I, Tim had all of the gear that he needed, and I because he was well, more well off than my family. And so he had everything he needed and I had to borrow and rent and find gear. And I came up with everything I needed, except for I only had one ice ax. If you've ever seen any video of ice climbers, you know, you have to have two ice axes. So I had an ice ax and an ice hammer, which is about a third of the size of an ax or maybe a quarter size oh, wow. of the ax. Yeah. And that was a, and it's shaped, it's shaped the same, but because it's so short and it has a different purpose, it's a hammer, not an axe, uh, you can climb with it, but it's not a climbing tool. It's a chip in the ice tool and uh, unscrewing ice screws and screwing in ice screws too, but you can climb with it. And we decided between us, and maybe I talked him into it, um, that I would be able to make this climb with this because I was young and strong. And so we began our ascent and I did make the climb with it, but it was a poor choice because I, it was tiring because with an ice axe, you can hang on an axe, you can plant the axe in the ice and let go of the handle and dangle on a strap, but you can't do that with an axe or with a hammer rather. You have to, you have to hold onto the hammer and grip it the entire time. So I was using extra, extra muscle power all right. day long for this 500, <clears throat> 600 foot climb. And so we arrived at the top of the cliff at sunset as all the other teams were leaving. And before we even got to the top of the cliff, a couple hours before, we were watching other teams descend. And we knew what kind of situation we were getting into before we even reached the top, which was deadly. And you can't, ice climbing is, you can't, like, like backpacking, you can go, oh, you know, it looks like there's a storm coming. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn around and walk back down the way I came. You can't do that ice climbing. You, you right. have to go right. to the top and you have to come down. It's just the way it is. And so by the time we reached the top of the climb, it was sunset. And, and we were dressed for a daytime. It was cold out, but we were dressed. We were, we were sweating because we were exerting ourselves and we were dressed well. And, but as soon as the, t- the sun went down, temperature dropped 30 degrees, and now we're freezing uh, with, within minutes. 
um, it was harrowing, and it was the big, that 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 by the time we sat on this cliff and we tried to we hauled up the rope, we were already terrified because I'd been I've I been can imagine control. Yes. Oh my God! Yeah, I. It took me, in, in 2000, this was 1980, and in 2016, I finally went back to this place. And, and up until 2016, I, I couldn't tell this story without crying. It was, it was brutal every time I told the story, not so much from the, the death end of it, but from the terror of the trauma of, of the entire night. It was 12 hours of intensive wrenching fear uh, and uh, level-headedness and inner drive and desire for survival, but just fear um, because the uh, I'd been trained. I'd been trained in wilderness first aid. I was on the National Ski Patrol volunteer. I'd been so for years and I theoretically knew all the steps that hypothermia and frostbite uh, bring and I knew that it was deadly and I knew we were in a deadly situation and so we sat at the top of this cliff and Tim hauled up the rope and it became a big knot because we were trying to keep our panic under control as our bodies shifted almost instantly into this violent muscles the entire body muscle spasms not like it was pulsing with one muscle like one there wasn't like a a rhythm of all the body pulsing with one pattern it was like every single muscle in my body and micro muscle was pulsating at its own speed and my whole body was (coughs) vibrating with shuddering i was shuddering my jaw was clattering tim's jaw was clattering and we were we knew immediately um, we were going to die. We, this was a deadly situation, and we understood that if we stayed where we were, we definitely were going to die. And if we didn't get off the mountain, we were definitely going to die, and we might not get off the mountain. But if we were going to die anyway, we might as well try. It was dark. Okay, so also, it's dark. Um, we can see unbelievable the starlight, <laughs> but, you know, it's like... Um, and we're on a cliff, and it's and there's only and, and there's like and there's ten thousand feet above us. So we're on we're only five six hundred feet up, but there's a ten thousand foot vertical above us. So we can't we can't there's like no upper path to walk down the back side of the mountain on. It's just a, we had one choice, and that was to persevere and uh, to rappel down a three rappels. It was a three rappel trip, and the rope was 150 feet long, uh, pardon me, 300 feet long double line. So 150 feet of line. And so every rappel was somewhere, you know, between, well, I guess maybe 130 and 140 feet, something like that. Wow. And we, so the sun goes down and the temperature drops and I take off my gloves to untangle the rope and my fingers begin to get frostbite. And we finally get the rope untangled after some period of time. I didn't have a watch on. I wasn't paying attention to the time. I was trying to survive. And we didn't have any water and we didn't have any food and we didn't have any extra warm stuff because it was a day climb. And we had just used up everything we had. 
and I, w I had no fat on my body as it was. I was 21 years old. And so immediately, because of the violent shivers, my body started consuming all the rest of the energy that it had. Every little bit of the energy that I had right. was getting eaten up. And so we discussed canoodling. I just like that word. Canoodling against the mountain face uh, to, to combine our heat but neither of us had enough heat to do that. So going down uh -huh. was the only choice. So we roped up and we traversed and click, click, click on the ice with our crampons on and over to the first rappel. And do you want me to keep going in detail, Mia? I can, um, or I can. I, I actually, um, let's take our first um, commercial break and we're only going to have one commercial break um, today so we don't interrupt you again so we'll be right back to the podcast um, thank you welcome back to the show Peter I have to say at this moment that that the, the um, your history your experiences and your connection to the divine w was in overdrive through throughout all of this um, conscious consciously or not, you know, whether you were conscious of it or not, you were being fed information, um, you know, rapidly, rapidly as you're, you know, in this crisis situation. Do you feel that? Yeah. Well, I, I, I wasn't thinking much about God. I was definitely focused on survival. I, I guess I was praying on the inside, for but out of desperation, not out, not with in, intensive intent. I, well, maybe it was intensive intent, but it wasn't mental focus. I was too busy paying attention what was going on, but I think the trajectory of my life, it's only, it's only in hindsight and, and only maybe 15 years after that I finally understood that my whole life was a trajectory toward that night and then thereafter and that that right. night was just a, a, a major transformation for me, but was a part of a much larger project um, right. in my life. right. Right. And so, so even if I was unaware of the presence of the divine, of, of my beloved, while this was going on, uh, it was not unaware of me and never had. Right. Been. Right. Um, exactly. So you've, so you've made your first rappel. And the rope got stuck up above oh, because God. we made a mistake because prior to hypothermia is that you begin to make stupid decisions because your brain is freezing. Actually, that's your brain freezing. Right. And, and so it stops firing correctly and you start making poor choices and we made a poor choice. And as a result of our poor choice, the rope was stuck up above and we couldn't get it free. And, we couldn't go back up again. It was very difficult to go back up. And so we yanked on the rope with all our weight for quite a long period of time and didn't come free. And so then Tim, being the brave, responsible person that he was, decided that he, as the leader, as the 
lead climber would reascend the rope and because there was an overhang too so there was free space so we repelled down the rock down the the ice in the rock for a period of first space i guess it was all ice at that point and but then at the very bottom of the repel there was an overhang an inverse overhang so the last i don't know 20 feet of it or so 30 feet of it was dangling and um tim used these fancy ascender knots that he knew and tied them up to the rope and i wrapped the rope around my waist to make it taunt as the taunt as i could and he began to ascend the rope and he got up 10 or 15 feet i don't know because i wasn't looking and suddenly he yelled falling and the rope came free and and he fell down i rolled out of the way he didn't nobody got hurt there was four feet of snow in this particular place up up to our thighs and um i guess it's less than four feet but up to our thighs anyway and and we got the rope free and so then we traversed to the next rappel then the moon had come out like a three-quarter moon and we could see pretty well and we get to this next rappel and we just and now we're off the ice on rock and we rappel down this thing kind of in a a corner a turn the mountain kind of goes in and then turns a corner and we went down this i don't know it's not really a chute but it's sort of like a chute and we got to the bottom of that rappel and we had to go around the corner onto a ledge and where there were iron pins and iron rings permanently attached to the mountain epoxied in with carabiners and nylon strap with another carabiner so we could clip in so we were physically safe for the first time we were clipped into the mountain and i untied i pardon me i i pulled the, the line out from my harness uh, took off my gloves and now uh, I'll, I'll tell you what my my hypothermic situation was after i described what happened next i took off my gloves and tied the one end of the line to my harness and tossed out the other end of the line out around that corner and pulled on the rope to pull it down through the the, the o-ring at the top but it jammed I, I pulled it maybe three inches three to six and it just caught it just jammed and and the more i pulled it the tighter the jam tighter got wow yeah and i couldn't and i couldn't flip the line you know how you know how you flip a line you take a line you flip that line it kind of lifts it up and takes it out of whatever jam it's in Um, right and you do it with with well everything must have been stiff right everything must have been stiff from yeah from the cold from the ice and the cold Oh, it was everything was stiff and and because the rope was bent around a corner there was no way to, to flip it and my hands were my hands were frozen i still have all my digits but i've got frostbite on everything every part of me that sticks out like everything and it's just i got frostbite everywhere and wow but my feet were frozen like blocks of ice my muscles by this point my muscles were so cold that movement was difficult speaking moving my jaw to speak was my jaw was my muscles were freezing my i i my god my feet were blocks of ice and my body was shutting down and i was confused and i got hot and i unzipped my coat and tim warned me not to but i did it anyway because i was hot which i even rationally knew that i wasn't really hot but it didn't really matter to me because I suddenly started felt like I was sweating and 
this is going on. So I, this is now we're well into the night. I have no idea what time it is, but it's it's hours and hours and hours and hours and hours, and this. Okay, so there came this point at which I began to understand that I was not getting out of this. And although I'd been I'd been terrified all night long, I suddenly reached this place of acceptance. I I knew that there was no way out of this and that I was going to die where I stood and they were going to find her. The first climbers to the face in the morning were going to find us. And there's nothing I could do about it. We had already reached this place in our relationship, Tim and I, where that night that we only spoke as necessary because even speaking sucked up our energy. Right. So I didn't, we didn't do a lot of talking at this point. And I remember having this piece sort of, a piece of acceptance. And I looked around and it was so beautiful. The sky had, the stars of, in the sky, there was 10 zillion stars of all these different colors. And because the moon was out, we could, I could see the mountain across the way and I could see Tim. And I started thinking about my family, how my parents were going to lose another child. My sister had run away when I was a kid, but it, it felt like she vanished to us. And there were all sorts of emotional and psychological and social problems that arose from that. That was the reason I was in Montana in the first place. And my mom and my dad had, my mom had this extended breakdown and I remember thinking, they're going to, they're going to, how can they handle losing another child? It's going to destroy them. And I was, said a little prayer and then I kept pulling on the rope. I didn't stop working at it. And then I began to fall asleep. And when I fell asleep, I would lose consciousness. I would black out, instantly black out, collapse, smack the rock. I had a helmet on, smack the rock, the rock pull myself back up and pull on the rope. And that process happened a bunch of times. And then I stood back up this one last time. And as I stood back up, still driving myself by my force of will, I touched into this place deep inside my brain for survival. And sometimes I call it my mammalian mind. And sometimes I call it my reptilian mind. And what I mean by that is, this very, very deep place inside myself. It felt like it was at the very base of my brain, the young, the oldest part of myself, of evolutionarily speaking. And right. it was survival. Stay alive. It was this very basic thing. And, and as, as this thing awakened in me, I found that I had a willpower, a resource of willpower that I just kept digging deeper into. And the deeper I dug into it, the more there was of it. And so I didn't quit, even though I felt peace. I kept trying. And this last time I stood up, I had tunnel vision. And for me, it was 
that I describe it as a spotlight on a stage, on a black stage in a black theater, and this, the actor standing center stage, and the spotlight is wide on this person, and then it goes down to darkness and a fade, and a rapid fade. That, and that's what my vision was like. I had this peripheral blackness circular, circular like a circle around my vision. And, and as I stood there, I could see the edges of it collapsing in rapidly. And I, I looked around trying to figure out, I was confused, what was this thing? I'd never seen such a thing. And I was, I was scared of it because, because, I, because my vision was collapsing. So this thing that I rely on my whole life and take for granted is now going away. And it's, it just closes right down very fast. And, and as soon as it goes black, I, I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. It goes to black, and, and I'm not unconscious. I'm, every other time for you know, the last couple of hours, I, however long it was, hour, I don't know, when I fell asleep, I lost consciousness. But this time I did not lose consciousness. I was amazed that I was not <coughs> Unconscious. You were hyper conscious. I was right. Uh, you yet, you were in yet, a hyper yes, hyper conscious state. Yeah. Yes, that's exactly what it was. And I but I was still inside my body. And right. I was but yeah, hyper conscious I that's a very I'm gonna use that. That's really good language because that's a very good description of it. I I was in a hyper conscious state. Of, but also confused um, because I did, wasn't in pain anymore. I couldn't feel my body anymore, and yet I was aware I still could think. And where the mountain was supposed to be, suddenly there was this opening of darkness, and the darkness was black darkness that extended into infinity, but it wasn't a darkness that like in a room where you shut the curtains and the lights and as you close the door and it's pitch black. It's not like that, like that dark, that, like that dark theater. It's not like that. It was, it was a darkness that I could see. I could see into way distant. I don't want to say infinity, but almost as if. And way in that far distance, uh, there was a pinprick of light appeared, like a pin through a piece of cardboard. And and the light appeared, and then it rushed toward me, and it became larger, uh, and and it came toward me at at a speed faster than light. It was so fast. It just, this great distance right toward me. And and it, it communicated to me. It was intelligent, and it was commanding, and it was, and it, it reached inside me, and and took me, and and when it said to me, telepathically, without language, I'm taking you. I resisted, with all of my willpower, but it just took me, and off I went. I was enveloped inside of this intelligence, and it was all powerful, and and it was the same as the one that had carried me when I was a child and I was in comfort and I was well and without agency I could make no choices and decisions I just had to go I was like a a doll 
lying in, on a bed somewhere, not animated, not able to make choices, but I just was carried and I was unafraid and I went up like a tunnel, okay? This is all metaphor. It's like a tunnel, but it was like the, the, this angel entity was the, the presence of the divine carrying me inside a smaller part of itself across this incredibly vast distance of darkness that that was still wide and and, and broad but but very also narrow where I was up this like a pipe or a chute into a sort of through a barrier or either through a barrier or the or the entity expanded but it it felt like I was I was by myself now and I was floating inside an ocean, uh, a, a, a cosmos, the size of the cosmos, and I could see in every direction, and it was utterly dark. But also because I could see it had an illumination that is unlike anything I've ever seen since. Um, and, well, that's not quite true. I've been up there since. Now that I'm saying that, so I was a, a, the first thing that happened is I had no body, no physical form. I was expanded. I was an expanded self, I, ten thousand times bigger than I am as a human being, but a sort of unfolded from my body and expansive. But I was no. There were no molecules. There were no. There was no brain. There was no body. There were no cells. I was a, an energetic orb of consciousness that was unified. All of my thinking was my being. There was no separation between. You know, here I have my brain in my head, and I know that I think inside my brain, and I can touch my fingertip, and I know that I'm touching a part of me, and they seem to be separate. In, in, but in this state of being, I was. My, my entire self was consciousness. And I could see in every direction simultaneously. I could see this expanse almost, almost to infinity, but I knew that I couldn't see infinity. I knew that I could see further than I could ever see before, even though I had no eye. And I was home. I was in, recognized myself for who I was. This is me. I, I, I'm this. I've always been this. Why had I imagined that I was anything other than this? And then it, it, I'm in a timelessness space too. There is there's no time and all time. All it's the eternal now, but it's not just linear time. It's time in every single direction, all at once. And so when I what I say next is all a jumble of instantaneous experience that I comprised, composed rather, into a story of uh, uh, an order, in a sequence. But there was, it all happened all at once. And suddenly in front of me there was this opening in the darkness, this appearance of the light itself. And the light was this gateway, this doorway, this immense being entity i've always thought of it as a gate but it had it had it was it was the divine itself and it, it appeared and i could see through it 
this deep, deep tunnel that went far, far, far into infinity. And it was translucent and transparent and solid all at the same time. So I could see the surface of it. And the surface of, the, of it was this, was this light flow, like a, like, a, like a waterfall. And I could see inside this, this light flow and see the, the width and the depth of it. And I could see through it. And I could see this in, infinite distance that it was inviting me to travel. I was... I, I was compelled, I was invited, I was welcomed to move toward it and to touch it, and I did with my consciousness. And as soon as I touched it with my consciousness, it flowed inside me, and then all these things happened at once. Uh, it, it knew me. It was all life and all living and all everything. It was... It was when I say it was all life, it was the entire universe, the maker, the bigger, the better, the best maker of the universe, so much more power, and it flowed inside of me deliciously, and it spoke to me, and it knew me. It knew me as Peter. So it knew me in these different ways. It knew me as Peter, this, that I could see this shell of me, that I, in which I had lived, but it also and it knew me in, in all of my deeds and actions, in, in all of the, the dark recesses of my life, and it told me, so I know you, I know you, I've always known you. And it, it, it also knew me as soul, and so it knew me in this very deep sort of calling my soul name way where it, it spoke to me, it called my essence of my being into being by by speaking an unspeakable name that created me that creates me and called me my special particular soul name that i can't say because it's not in language but it echoes still inside right. me and and i could i could see all of the corners and places of my life and know that as a human being i was known and I went through uh, what I've, I've come to call, and in my book I call a hell of my own making, but I've come to call it a little more of a, a purgative fire of divine love because I went. my life review was to experience all of the pain I'd given away in my life from the interior of the individual to whom I gave it and to feel their emotional response to the pain that I intended to give them or didn't intend to give them, but gave it to them anyway, uh, the suffering that I caused inside of the person from their point of view was 10,000 times greater than I had imagined when I gave it to them. And I, and, and I, especially about the intended pain, which featured so much more prominently as in like a chronological sequence of being inside all the people that I ever hurt and everything I'd ever done to hurt them from the point of view of that person simultaneous with the point of my point of view of all of the reasons long forgotten why I had caused the pain to them, why I had intended it, why I had decided to give it to them, why I had wanted to hurt them. And I had this juxtaposition of the amount of pain that I gave them versus the, the minuscule amount of reason that I had to give it. And I experienced their pain. The pain that I gave away actually had accrued in me karmically. It was my burden. And I went through this whole 
chronological sequence of all this suffering and and reasoning of my decisions to give him the pain and measured myself guilty as guilty i i wasn't being judged i judged myself in comparison to the love and the voice and the beauty that spoke forgiveness inside of me inside of this ocean of mercy and love that was all around me but i couldn't see the presence of the divine but the divine was right next to me and speaking i describe it as the voice with a capital v was speaking the, these things inside me and not in a sequence of words in a language form but in a download of instant understanding and knowledge all of this happened all at once and i it said i love you i love you i know you i've always known you i called you into being i create you i am creator i create you i love you as you are there's nothing about you that i do not love turn to me and I could see I could see all of humanity and I could see all of the suffering that we all gave to each other and and I could see that there was this equality of our being made in the material world that gave us this this equalness of of not our fault we we were in the system we didn't make the system the the creator made the system and the only creator is pure and unlimited and because we are manifested and and limited and therefore impure in comparison we weren't at, we're not at fault for the system in which we find ourselves where everything consumes everything else from the big bang to the black hole and the star systems and the virus that kills people all of it everything eats something else to survive here and we eat each other as human beings and compared to each other we are equally equally guilty compared to divine infinite perfect love which which showed me that the love that i'd given away in my life i kept and all the love that had been given to me i kept and so even though i carried all this causation of pain and other people i carried also the purity of the love which enabled me to see and hear i could hear the forgiveness and when i began to listen to the forgiveness and listen to the love that was being spoken inside me with this this voice that was so much larger than me and and all human suffering and all of the universe my beloved i love you come come to me welcome to me and this by listening i turned to the divine and when i turned to the divine i was infilled with this multiplicity of all of these facets of all the beautiful things in life that we call joy and love and beauty and knowledge and paradise bliss understanding healing wholeness adoration awe paradise all of it infilled me as this oneness expanded inside of me blowing me up like a bigger balloon to almost self-extermination because i was so infilled at the at the expanded to this to the edges of my capacity for infilling and still inside the infinity of this of this of the, of heaven and it's not like heaven and god are separate they are the same thing 
All of this right. is the same thing. It's uh, beauty, beauty, the beauty and love. The two words I would pick, I pick to describe all of these facets of charity, understanding, and oh. And I was shown myself as I was called into being. I saw my, I saw the origin of my soul self, my consciousness, my atman, my my photon, my singular photon. That I was like a wave and a particle at the same time. I was. I was not physical. I was I was living where I was inside the divine, but I was also seeing the eternal, everlasting length and breadth and depth of my consciousness that had come into being so many eons ago. Yet it's timeless, so there's no eon. But it's it's this paradox, and I could see all these other lives I had lived. But none of them, even taken in aggregate, were uh, were anywhere near the size of the self of my soul. My consciousness was so much bigger and longer than any of these small little lives that I had lived, including the one that I had just passed through. And I was in I was in this state of adoration of of the divine presence. And then that sort of receded a little bit. And I, I asked, am I dead? And the voice said, yes, you're dead. And I said, well, I can't die now. And the voice said, why not? It's your time. Come home. Welcome home. Come. I said, well, my parents are suffering and I can't take another child from them. And I was swept by the same voice, entity, location of the reduction of the divine that was present to me that I couldn't see. There was also the, the breadth and width of this infinity. And I was brought to the edge of heaven where, where creation becomes matter. And I could see the galaxy and the solar system and earth up close, I could see Earth like a hologram with seven billion people on it, and everyone I could see individually all at once, not like looking from one to the next to the next, but I took them all in at the same time, and I could see everyone living their lives doing day and night, some on the daytime, some on the nighttime, every wars and and sex and babies and and boring mundane dusting and everything that people were doing and everything was covered by this this thick layer like this foam of the veil of blindness and it wasn't just humans that were covered the entire scene was covered with this this veil of of blindness and as they went about their lives and the voice said to me in the way that I love you now, you now know that I have always loved you eternally. You are my beloved and my particular beloved. You sense the greatness of my love for you, and I love every single human being with that same particular personal love that you feel. And because of my love, all has been well for all of them. All will be well and all is well, just as it is for you, that you now understand the the greatness of my eternal love and the wellness of your being and the wholeness of yourself now. And because of my love, 
all will be well for them. And I could see my parents' faces featured predominantly, predominantly, and I could see their suffering, and the voice said, your parents will be here in the wink of an eye. The length of, a, of any life is the wink of an eye, and they will be well. And I, but I could also see their suffering then and their suffering through life, and I could see that their suffering would be less if I went back. And I was still given the choice, and I said, do I have to stay here? And the voice said, no, you don't have to stay here. I want you to stay here. You know my love. You know now, you know now that in the wink of an eye, they will be here and be well. So come home now. But I also knew that the length of their life from their point of view would be decades of suffering. And so I said, I haven't gone all the way yet. Do I have to? And the voice said, no. I said, well, if I go back, can I come back here to this oneness of being, to the state of union and presence with you in the state of love? And the voice said, yes, you can come back here. And I said, well, I choose to live my life. And the voice said, you won't live your life and sent me back. And on my way back, I became, went from this expansive consciousness into like my, my spirit self, where I took on the form of my, my consciousness entered into the form of sort of my person, but I had all these entry points in which I could enter my life. There was all these doorways, all these openings, which were like paths I would live in my life. And in the, the center of all of these paths was the singular laser beam of light that was calling for me to enter into the whiteness, into the lightness, into the love itself. And I remember thinking to myself, I want some autonomy. I don't want to be consumed fully. And, and because of that decision, I didn't go into the, the fullness of the light. I went off to the side of the light, which was, was so this light was, was also permeating in sort of like a fading a fading sort of way out to the outer edges of all these choices. And I went in near to the light, but not in the light. And I entered into this like tunnel and, I, and, and down this tunnel, I came being crushed and collapsed and smushed and crunched like aluminum foil into a ball and screwed inside myself. And then I was back. And I- Amazing. <clears throat> suffering. Yes, it it feels it feels like you know you, it feels like you may never experience it again. The separation is so profound that it it feels like at least to me it feels like you know you'll ne you'll never have that again that completeness. But that's not true. That's not, an illusion. Not, that's not not ultimately true. Um, I don't. I, not in my body. I don't think I'll. I, mean, I don't know. I don't know. <clears throat> but I, I, I don't think in my as as Peter I'll ever experience that again. But I do have a, a hope that that as I evolve as a spiritual being, and by that I mean not coming back here if I can help it. But as I, as I, because there were, I've subsequently come to understand because of, of other journeys on which I've been taken that, that infinity, it's possible to become unionized with infinity 
with the obliteration of self by joining yes. capital F self. I, I completely but then, agree with you. But then you. But then you are correct, of course, because when that happens, I will no longer be able to have the experience because I won't be there. Um, I, I think we're always... I think we're always there individually and collectively. Um, always. But, I'm, I'm, oh, yeah. Yes. But I, I, I truly believe that humanity is on the brink of, of having access to a new level, a new level of consciousness and, um, and a new way of interacting with God and the universe as this veil that you described is being removed. Um, and, and we collectively are the ones, the only ones who can remove it. No one is going to do it for us, but, um, you know, more and more people are making the commitment to do their spiritual work. And each person who, who steps up to, to make that commitment is, you know, putting a, 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 a pin prick in that cardboard and letting the light in. And, um, and that is, um, allowing this to flow to this energy, this love, this divine love to flow to more and more people, um, which is elevating, you know, everybody. A hundred percent agree. It's so funny. I mean, my older brother was a runaway, a, you know, serious runaway. So we even have that in, in common. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, um, I, you know, throughout life, I do get these messages on a day, on a daily basis. And I had, um, an experience in, in 2000, no, in 1998, when I first moved to upstate New York, where, which also involves ice, I hit a patch of black ice on my way to the dentist. And I knew I had lost complete control of the car and the car was thrown off the road. Um, All I could think of at the time was that I had lost control and was never getting it back. And I was thinking of Carlos Castaneda and Don Juan and Mm. clearly got the message that if I relinquished control, everything would be fine. But that morning I had, I had loafers on in the house and there was barely any snow on the ground, but it was snowing lightly. And this voice said, put on your rubber boots. So my car is careening off the road, knocks down two mature pine trees and the major electrical pole for the area. And my car was conducting 38,000 volts of electricity. And I had live cables arcing on the hood of my car with flames. I have uh, clearly there's a pattern with me and cars, but um, Mm. I had, I had, you know, flames on the other side of the windshield and I thought the gas tank would blow. So I got out of the car and the current jumped a few feet in front of me. It just arced into the snow, and um, my tires were uh, were blown. The chassis on the car was melted, and the current grounded behind the 
driver's side rear tire, the frozen earth was just spit all over the place. And I caused a complete blackout in, in the whole area. And um, I landed on this poor man's front lawn and blew up his TV set at 10 of 9 in the morning. And it was just like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, to be honest. I, I felt like I had, you know, landed someplace else. And um, he invited me in and gave me a cup of coffee. But 25 rescue workers came to the scene and said they'd never seen anyone survive an accident like that, yet alone just walk away the way I did. And... Um, you know, these messages of what to do, you know, in advance are something that I live my life by completely because I I know I'm being guided. Well, I I do have a similar sort of, that's quite a story. Um, I I had the whole thing pictured in my head with the arcing electricity and uh, just, wow. You, so you, you've actually, we have we have this in common. Uh, uh, I've been in a whole bunch of car wrecks too, and I can't believe that I've survived them. It's just like, how did you survive that? Um, <laughs> well, I you know I had I had arc burn. I my eyes started to hurt that afternoon, and I called the hospital. And I had arc burn like welders get, and I was taken to the hospital. They said we heard you had died. I said no, here I am. But, um, you know, I I don't know if you know anything about astrology, but Uranus is the planet of electricity. And at that on that particular date, it was at 13 degrees Aquarius. And I am an Aquarian with a 13 degree sun in Aquarius. Mm -hmm. So the planet of electricity was exactly uh, on my sun. And and that's what happened. But for me, it was really about showing me that I have one foot in the, you know, in higher dimensions anyway, you know, I'm here as, as we've talked about, you know, I'm, I'm on the earth, but I'm not necessarily of the earth. And, um, I mean, there are so many, so many stories, um, so many events in my life that are dramatic, you know, too dramatic. It's, it's not something that the average person goes through, but, um, but it's for a reason. And when I got out of the car and shut the car door, I, I said aloud, you know, there's something God wants me to do and I haven't done it yet. So, so, so uh, you mentioned Don Juan and I'm, I'm going to go back to that same time period and pick up Jonathan Livingston Seagull's author, Richard Bach and his uh-huh. book, illusions. And in the, in the book illusions, how do you know, if your job on earth isn't finished yet, the answer is if you're alive, it's not. <laughs> so, <laughs> I love that. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. And so, um, but I want to say, I want to pick up on what you had mentioned a few minutes ago and, and maybe close to 45 minutes ago when you talked about, when you asked about um, the divine intuition as a as a result of my nde uh, i my first nde i live in this i live sort of before myself i live sort of dislocated in time i think is a way to put it i see i see i have deja vu like all the time like i Mm -hmm. see my life before i live it uh, uh, just constantly and not like an hour before or a week before but 
almost just before, just always constantly just sort of out of sync. It's like two waveforms. You get, you get two waveforms and, and, and they kind of, one is behind the other. It's sort of like that. I'm kind of the, I, I'm this waveform that is seeing the wave before, I'm in the waveform a front of the wave, in front of the wave that's following me. But I'm also at the wave that's following me because I'm in my body. So I'm in the, like these two sorts of places simultaneously, constantly. And so I, and, and I, 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 I know that I make decisions that impact the direction of my life. I have free will. I have agency. All around me, people have free will and agency. Everybody's making decisions. But everything is woven with this underweb of the divine self and light even with our decisions being made and all of the probabilities, uh, all of the probabilities of the decisions that I make on a daily basis existed in the tunnel that I came through when I came back to my life. All of those probabilities were all real. And the decisions that I make, make those probabilities into actuality. And I live that particular one. And so I'm always living right where I'm supposed to be according to the decisions that I make and the world makes around me. So I'm, I'm sort of always, I guess, in, in tune, I guess, is the way, even when it doesn't feel that way, like bad things happen. It doesn't feel like it's attunement, but it still is. I completely agree with you. I, I, that's very much my experience too. Um, and, or, but again, we really are in this new place of um, availability of consciousness and, and the ability to co-create with the divine um, to help improve what's going on here on earth. We are creative beings and we're meant mm-hmm. to be creative beings. We're meant to be productive um, and make a contribution. And, um, you know, uh, it's only in service to others that we really fully ex- experience ourselves, I believe. And um, we are in this place of manifestation that, that is available to us if we choose to be responsible with that gift. Um, and I, I just yep. see it, you know, all around me again and again and again, the, the signs of this energy and this, uh, you know, frequency coming in uh, to humanity. It's really, it, the, uh, you know, I, we're entering into the age of Aquarius again, if you want to use a little astrology, but um, the way I really think of it is Christ pouring the waters of life you know, on all of us, and it's it's mm. up to us to absorb it. We, our bodies are, you know, what, 80% water? Um, and, you know, these past decades, we've had all these storms and tsunamis and, you know, water, as we know from the work of Dr. Rimoto, has an intelligence uh, all its own. And my personal feeling is that because humanity is not absorbing this divine water that's being poured on us, the waters of earth are reacting to it. Um, it's there for us. This is all there for us, but it's up for it's up to us 
to choose to participate in this flow, in this divine plan. As you say, it's all, it is all woven together and every little thing influences every other thing. You know, mm-hmm. we, the Lakota, uh, say, you know, Metakie Oyasin, which is to all my relations, we are all connected. You know, the winged, the four-legged, there, there's nothing that, that's not, you know, in God's mind. Yes. Nothing, there's nothing that is separate from it. It's all connected, all of it. Um, and there's... This light, I think you're right. I think that the light is being poured out. And can I take a moment and talk about an observation? And Please. That, that is that is that I went to this lecture at the International Association for Near-Death Studies Conference. It's an annual conference. And at this conference, I heard a man named Pim von Lommel speak. And he is a scientist, a researcher. This, this is a research group that has been researching near-death experience for 40 years. And they have data now, after 40 years, accumulation of data. And in this lecture given by Pim von Lomo, he said that in the United States, there are 10 to 20 million near-death experiencers alive. And to then extrapolate from that number globally, and that in the 1960s, cardiac, when cardiac care advanced, and they started with uh, the paddles and heart replacements and, and all, the, all the other things that they do to save lives now. That, and that, as that technology improved and spread around the globe, there are now hundreds of millions of us over the last mm-hmm. 60 years. And we're in every culture and every religion and atheists and uh, education and you, you name it, we're there as near-death experiencers. And that in the last 20 years, in the last 10 years, it's become less woo-woo because it's neurosurgeons and CEOs and atheists who are all talking about it now. And there are books and social media. And it, it, it seems to me this, that there is a, a global uh, conspiracy of, <laughs> of, of, of medical science they don't realize they're participating in with the with god and medical science has been raising the dead and placing nodes little tiny optical uh, uh, fiber fibers of light inside of people's bodies by their journeys into heaven and I, i'm starting to call them theonauts like astronauts and psychonauts I, uh-huh. i'm like Theonauts, people <laughs> who die and come back, take a trip, and they bring they bring like they brought moon rocks back. We're bringing light back with us, and and we're independent of each other, and yet we are all united in this light. And for the first time in the history of the world, there has never been so many people like us ever, ever. And now we're all talking because of social media, and there's books and there's movies, and and it's coming out into the forefront of the consciousness of the culture. And, and the greater thing is this, is that there are more natural-born mystics in the world, and there are people who have mystical experiences because we're all susceptible to them. Maybe you had a visitation from the dead. Somebody you love came to visit you and, and communicated to you telepathically forgiveness or love or, or whatever the message was, and that now you know 
you, you move from belief in the afterlife to knowing that your deceased loved one still is living, that is a mystical experience. And I think that there are millions, tens and hundreds of millions of people like that. And Absolutely. That it's going to be safe to talk about it. That's yeah, it's all part it's all part of this growth in consciousness on every on every level and um you know even the government is is in a form of disclosure about ETs and um UFOs, mm-hmm. you know, all these mm-hmm. things that have been kept secret um and and even in terms of occult information or esoteric information you know the secret societies wanted to keep this information to themselves for you know hundreds and hundreds of years but in in fact through the internet and as you say it's it's becoming part of the mainstream and that's why we we have such ability to expand spiritually right now uh, it's extraordinary. First time in history where yes. maybe we can move beyond our religious forms into the mysticism that formed the religions and find right. our unity there. And I just want to beautifully talk to said, honey, beautifully said, Peter. That's so true. Thanks. I, I wanted to mention that uh, I'm a UFO experiencer before my, you would have to be, <laughs> You would, you would have to be, I, I, you know, because once you're open, once you're open spiritually, psychologically, energetically, um, I'm sure you can communicate with animals too. All, all these things, Oh yeah. you know, all these, yeah, it all opens up to us and we start to interact with all of the kingdoms. Um, you know, it's not just, it's not just about us. Um, we are part of life's web, and we are also part of the solution, if we choose to be. If we choose to be, because we do have willpower. We have, to, we have to choose it. It can choose us. I mean, if you get a visitation from the dead, um, you, didn't, you don't make that happen. It, it, mystical experiences are passive. They happen to you. And they're temporary. They don't. They have a beginning and an end. But they also leave knowledge and wisdom inside you, and it's so hard to talk about. But you do have to choose it to pursue it. And the deeper, the more you pursue it, the more it feeds you. Especially if you've already, if it's already touched you. Once it's already touched you, once you've had a divine experience of some kind, you can use that divine experience as a remembrance, as an opening, as a as a as a doorway back to where you come from, which is heaven. Yes. And, then and we, we, we can bring heaven on earth. We can, mm-hmm. you know, create that experience, that connection day. here, and live in it every day, exactly. You, you do, too. I'm sure you do. All near death Yeah, I do. I do. do. <laughs> yeah. Yep. It's fabulous. Yep. I mean, it's really... You know, life is so simple. But that's the other thing that I, I that popped into my head a little while ago. Um, we make it much more difficult than it actually is. It is, it, you know, the process is really very basic and simple. And telling the truth about how you feel and you know what you're experiencing 
regardless, that is the key to aligning your spiritual self and connecting. It's, it's really that simple to not, you know, tell little white lies or fudge your feelings or to just accurately acknowledge where you're at at that moment in time. And the rest will just take care of itself. Yeah, because it's actually a form of humility. You're being, you're, yes. you're humbling yourself to who you actually are. Right. And you find out that you're greater than you ever imagined. Absolutely. We're so blessed. We're so blessed to be born at this moment in time and go through this process together. It's, it's, it's such a gift. Things are, you know, things around the world are, are probably more serious than they've ever been in the history of, of humanity. We're facing great global cataclysm in the coming decades. If not now, when? If not now for, us, for humanity to evolve on Earth, uh, to find a way to bring heaven here now, you know, now we need it more than ever. We need each other more than ever. I agree completely. And here we are. (laughs) And we have the opportunity to enjoy the process. That's the other thing. You know, we can really um, whistle while we, while we work. It's, it's, Mm -hmm. there's no reason for us to not, not enjoy this transition. No, because you know you're not from here. <laughs> Once you know you're not from here, it provides all this freedom. Like, I always was a fun lover before I died, but after I died, I'm like, bring on the fun, because I know that I'm a transient here. I'm a wayfarer, wayfarer, passing through. And because I'm passing through, I, I'm bold. Well, you're, you're forever... Yeah, I'm forever. So are you. So is everybody. <laughs> You're forever. <laughs> yes, so is so we all are, absolutely. Well, Peter, it has been such a joy to have this conversation with you. Is there anything you would like to share with our audience before we say goodbye for now? Sure, and, and I want to say before I say that, how much a pleasure it's been to talk to you. Um, but also, uh, I'm, I'm available at peterpanagor.love, peterpanagor.love, and I do, I specialize in counseling mystics and near-death experiencers, and I've been doing it for 40 years. Uh, uh, so I'm available for conversation and for uh, some reflection. That's, and the, at the end of the message is this, I guess, that you are love and you are beloved and God is love, and it's available to everyone inside themselves. All you have to do is go in. The, great, the way out of here is in. The way out is in. So true. We will have all your information um, with this interview and um, um, links to your books and your bio, um, so people will have no trouble getting in touch with you. Great. Thank you very much, Maya.
Thank you. Thank you so much. You really uh, made my day. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you have a great time out there in, in South Dakota, um, somewhere out there. And I hope all things go the way you hope and dream. Bless Thank you. you. It's going to be 101 today. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not ready. Well, no, no, I right. <laughs> <laughs> Take good care. <laughs> you too. Stay cool. Bye-bye. Peace and love.